Paracast, with your hosts Gene Steinberg and David Pietti. This episode of the Paracast is brought to you by Audible.com. Download a free audiobook of your choice today at audiblepodcast.com slash Paracast. That's audiblepodcast.com slash Paracast. And now, on with the show. Angela Joyner, before we focus on the Stephenville case, kind of maybe frame the kind of town it is, whether it's had a history of UFO and or paranormal events. I know the one thing I had read, maybe David recalls it too, is that it wasn't a terribly long distance from the Bush compounds. Everybody talked to it in that connection. So what kind of place is this? What's the background? Stephenville is a town of about 16,000 people, but it is home to Tarleton State University and grows considerably when those students are here. But the main uh, industry in our area here is uh, dairy farming. So um, lots of Holstein cows on, you know, uh, scattered throughout the pastures and things around here and uh it's fairly flat ground um we're not in a mountainous area area we are about 70 miles from uh crawford texas where the bush compound is and we're um also near glen rose where there's a nuclear plant so um it's a laid-back community and uh, I wouldn't say that um, there's not there's a history of UFOs in this area. So this would be the first major instance of something happening there. Yes, I think so. Mm-hmm. Um, January the eighth was um, a mass sighting. Dozens of people saw something in the sky, uh, something huge, lights three officers, three uh, area law enforcement people, not only saw lights, but they actually saw um, a craft. And this was the large craft that we've read about, this large triangular craft, Angela? Well, not necessarily uh, triangular. When Steve Allen, the pilot, first called me at the uh, Empire Tribune, um, what he described was a set of lights that were horizontal, um, spanning about a mile, and um, those uh, lights reconfigured into two vertical sets of lights. Mm. And um, the uh, object uh, actually came over, he and his friends in Selden, which is just a little community outside of Stephenville, And um, the second time it came over them, uh, Steve said that there were either F-15s or F-16s in pursuit. He said the only way to identify those uh, jets were through the tail section, and uh, he thought they were F-16s. Did they see these jets using afterburners, and that's how they knew that they were military jets? Um, Well... Because Steve's been a pilot for 30 years, Mm -hmm. um, he's fairly familiar with uh, most aircraft and uh, and especially, you know, craft that uh, would be in our area or commonly in our area. He did indicate that the afterburners did go on when when I interviewed him. Frank Warren here, by the way. Uh, We were about to give you a great introduction with a musical intro and everything, Frank. (laughs) Well, you can just insert that later. 
Jeez. Now it's too late. You know, you get one introduction, that's it. Sorry about that, man. Oh, darn. <laughs> Go ahead. I think he left. Well, no, I was just interjecting. The, uh, David right. asked, I believe it was David that asked, if there were afterburners and, uh, Correct. used, in fact, and there were. Uh, in the interview that I did with Steve early on, that uh, uh, he had indicated that the object actually kept a uh, relative distance. He said he said that the jets would kick their afterburners on, and he said the uh, well, in fact, to quote him, it was as if the object played with the jets and kept the same distance. Uh, the jets speeded up, the object would speed up, and this was on the return trip in a relative course back towards the, in, in the direction of the Crawford Ranch and the direction that it originally came from. So this is like a game of catch, almost. Uh, a little cat and mouse thing. Uh, yeah. Here's a question for you now. I, I've actually seen at fairly close proximity military jets flying, and it's one of those things where when you see one of these jets, these things move so fast that very often by the time you hear it, the jet's out of sight, especially if, if, if they're taken on serious speed. So. When Steve Allen describes uh, seeing these things chasing this object, we're assuming here that there was a good amount of visibility, and he was seeing things happening over a fairly significant uh, range of distance, right? Well, yes, and of course, uh, well, in this being Texas, so you've got a big sky horizon uh, right. in, in that specific vicinity, right? Uh, okay, opposed to where I am with you know a mountainous terrain. Uh, off in the horizon, so there's a big sky country. Right, absolutely. Now, when these jets were following this thing, uh, and, and either of you can answer this, I suppose, was it at that time also reconfiguring its lights, or did its lights stay in a similar orientation and configuration? Uh, well, I'll take that, and, and something that I'd like to add that, that Steve said to me that I thought that was fascinating. He had met, well, first off, the lights stayed the same with the exception that, and he uh, attributed this to, to the propulsion. He said that the white lights, the, the lights, quite frankly, and I don't want to digress, but they, they did a number of odd things prior to uh, it coming back with the jets chasing it. But mm -hmm. uh, he had mentioned that the lights, the white lights at this point, as it's retreating and it's being chased by the F 16s or F 15s, turned red, and he attributed that to the propulsion system uh, in his mind as this thing got speed. I did a little bit of research on that, and interestingly enough, I had I found that one of the uh, early reports by Richard Mosser of MUFON uh, in regards to the Phoenix Lights case, some eyewitnesses uh, actually had uh, recounted almost the same thing, where and they attributed to the speed of the large object that as this thing speeded up, they noticed white lights turning red. And I and I just thought that correlation was fascinating, you know, 11 years earlier. And again, we have another very large object. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, that struck a chord with me, and, and I went back and I looked up the original report. And also, too, Angie, correct me if I'm wrong, didn't Steve say that the lights were... Uh, a half a mile apart and a mile long by his uh, perspective? Well, I remember him saying, you know, the entire uh, set were about a mile wide. Okay, well, I've got it wrong then, because it was either a, a mile wide and a half a mile long or vice versa. But in, in any event, very, very large. Right. Yes, it was quite large. Well, th this was something that I think uh, is significant, and it's and it really 
got the, the hair on my arm standing up when he explained this to me. As he was recounting the event, and again, this was early on after after this happened, mm-hmm. he explained how the, how the other lights appeared as this thing passed over him. And I was trying to recreate that in my mind's eye. And I paused him for a moment, and I because he he kept indicate he kept saying craft opposed to lights, right. and I says you know he he basically said to me look I couldn't see a craft he says but I swear to you one was there, and he says as as this object passed over uh, he and, and his two buddies there he says then the other lights appeared and I said well, let me stop you right there I said this is what I'm getting this is the sense that I'm getting. Uh, I said, it's as if, I said, I'm going to call this just an invisible flying car, for lack of a better term. And I said, as this thing's coming into you, you're seeing the headlights and you're seeing the, uh, the tail markers, uh, for lack of a better term. Mm-hmm. And I said, as this come thing, as the object approaches you and, and it becomes perpendicular to you, it's not that the lights come on. They've always been there, but the object itself that you can't see uh, was blocking the rear lights, and then as it passes you, now you can see those rear lights. I said, is that a good analogy? And he said, bingo, that's exactly it. He says, these lights did not deviate at all, not one iota. He says, is it is if it is one object that I just couldn't see. And he says, then when it passed me, then I could see the rear of it where these lights were. He says, it wasn't as if they came on. Mm-hmm. It was as if they were, already, they were already on, and then I could see them as it passed me. And then, of course, then it went over towards Stephenville, and, and as uh, Angela mentioned, it, uh, they went vertical, they, had, they did some odd things, and then disappeared. The thing that I remember him talking about, guys, is that um, the lights moved as if they were attached to something. It, they weren't a floating free form. Exactly. Right, right, as if they were attached to a solid structure. Uh, a quick question about this. When we hear about the uh, the Phoenix episode earlier in the evening, and we always have to remind people that the Phoenix Lights episode really consists of two discrete events, uh, one which happened earlier in the evening with a, with a large craft that was blocking that, out stars. Actually, that's, that's incorrect, David. It was multiple events, but go ahead. Well, the point I'm making is that the, what we normally think of as associated with the Phoenix Lights, that one video of that uh, that semicircular ring of lights, uh, there are a lot of issues and problems with that that later event that uh, for which there exists video footage that we've seen, but there was the separate set of events, and I, and I don't want to say it, I, I, I'm sorry, Frank, I didn't mean to imply it was just one event, but there was something that happened earlier in, in the evening, a set of events of this large craft and some lights, uh, where people were describing it passing overhead and blocking out stars. So in in the discussion of the Stevensville sighting, was it an overcast night? Was it a clear night? And did, were there any uh, reports of it blocking out things like maybe ambient light reflecting on clouds or even stars? Well, at that point, it was a clear night. Dusk. Yeah, it wasn't it just about dusk when Steve had his sighting, Angela? There were, I mean, yes, in other words, there was. weren't were any stars. Yeah, the yeah, sun no was just that. sinking. Mm-hmm. There were three um, area law enforcement officers that actually saw a craft that night. And um, then um, we have the Stephenville radar report that confirms an unknown object was in the air that night. So I don't think there's um, any question that uh, whatever was here was uh, a solid object. Mm-hmm. Okay. 
You know, that's really significant, too, guys. Uh, important to point out that this started out as an anecdotal evidence sighting. In other words, uh, it was a visual sighting reported by many competent witnesses, including the, the police officers, etc. cetera. Uh, and it's now a radar visual uh, right. case. That's very, very difference. important. Yeah. Right. Were there any indications that, uh, and, and I'm not, I don't think we're familiar with the issues of air traffic control over these areas. Certainly, we would assume that over Crawford, there are some some real strict guidelines about air traffic. Um, were there any reports that were acquired that made any conclusions about there, for example, being air traffic routed around this area by area airports? I'll tell you what. Before we get that answer. Hey, neighbors, as we said, this episode of the PowerCast is being brought to you by Audible.com, and you can download a free audiobook of your choice. And you can select from over 40,000 audiobooks and lots, lots more featuring bestsellers about the paranormal, about UFOs, novels. You pick it, and when you get the book that you want, just download to your Apple iPod or over 400 other devices. All right. You can download your free audiobook today, today at audiblepodcast.com slash powercast. That's audiblepodcast.com slash powercast. This offer only good for USA listeners. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. Airy Radio, opening the door to the unknown. Download episodes of Airy Radio directly from iTunes or visit their website at www.airyradio.com. Hi, this is Bud Hopkins, and you're listening to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg, David Gedney, and I completely, enthusiastically endorse this program. It's an absolutely great program with an opportunity to stretch out and talk. This is the Cliffhanger Hour, and we're talking to Angela Joyner, a newspaper reporter who's covered extensively the Stephenville, Texas case, and it's also been covered by our friend Frank Warren. Well, I know that uh, it, when we heard about the O'Hare a UFO case in November of 2006, there seemed to be some indications uh, that came out after the fact that air traffic, normal air traffic, had been routed around the area where the UFO was seen. So what I'm wondering is, were, were there any indications that either commercial airline traffic or maybe even military air traffic was rerouted around where this thing was? If, if we have reports of uh, fighter jets being seen chasing this thing, that would certainly indicate that if there was commercial air traffic over the area, that the military would have potentially intervened and had, let's say, commercial airliners stay away. When you have jets deployed at a relatively low altitude, it seems to me that you would want to keep commercial airline uh, activity away from the area. So was there any – Was you see what, I'm, see what I'm asking? Was there any attempt to find yeah. out whether this happened? Okay. I don't know of any commercial airliners that were diverted, 
But at first, the military said they had no F-16s in the air that night. And then two weeks later, they issued a press release that said, oh, we made a mistake. We actually had 10 F-16s in the area that night. Supposedly, they were performing um, uh, standard training operations. And in this press release, it said that uh, the Brownwood military operating area was over Erath County. And um, it wasn't long before I had a slew of pilots around my desk with aeronautical maps showing me exactly where that operating area is. And it does not include all of Erath County. It includes a tiny portion of Erath County in the Dublin area. Not even all of Dublin is in it. And Dublin's a very small town. So um, that got the story um, stirred up again, you know, just when things were dying down. And then they they come out and say, oh, they made a mistake. Um, they did have TNF-16s in the air. And then we had the radar report that confirmed that this unknown object at 8 o'clock was about 10 miles from uh, the Crawford Ranch, the Bush uh, White House, and um, and nobody seemed to notice that this thing was flying without a beacon or without a transponder, mm-hmm. and uh, these jets are paying uh, no attention to it at all. It seems to fly unimpeded into a no-fly zone. The training exercises cannot go outside the MOA. So just, right. I mean, if a pilot did that, they would be fried. If that was just a, a, a training incident and somebody went outside the MOA, uh, the, you know, they'd be in big trouble. Which, well, that's what I'm way, wondering about. That's what I'm wondering about The same thing happened here. in Pocomo sure. just a couple months later. The, a repeat incident, almost identical uh, in something that didn't get as much press as the Stephenville incident. Had all, the, almost the identical same thing happened in Kokomo, Indiana, uh, you know, months later. But, yeah, you can't go outside the MOA. So uh, well, there's so many I, holes in the story. It's my understanding that if they do go outside the MOA, that they are supposed to notify city officials of where they're going to be. And um, I did talk with the uh, city administrator in Stephenville, and he received no notification. So about three months ago, one of the city council members here did file a complaint with the Naval um, Air Base and uh, with the FAA. I think it was the FAA. But I know for sure the military people, he filed a complaint that uh, the city wasn't notified if they were indeed, you know, performing uh, training exercises over the city. Now, here's a question about this press release from the military and them stating that they had 10 fighter jets out that night. Were they trying to imply that the UFO that was reported was, in fact, these jets? Was that the implication? Well, I guess I should um, go back in the story a little bit. I at first called, um, you know, several air bases and was directed to the Naval Air Base in Fort Worth, which is formerly known as Carswell Air Force Base. I talked with a Major Carl Lewis, and he was a very friendly guy, very talkative guy, and uh, he said, you know, he didn't know, but he would find out for me if they had... um, any craft in the in our area, but 
he speculated to me that he thought people were probably seeing um, sunlight glinting off of two commercial airliners. He said he's seen that as a pilot himself. It can be real tricky, um, hard to identify. And so I wrote a story, you know, saying what he thought it was. And then um, two weeks later is, is when that press release comes out. The actual press release does not say anything about a UFO or this is what we think people right. saw. It's just saying, you know, we had said we had nothing here. We have since found out that was a mistake. We're correcting the mistake. We did have 10 F-16s. Mm. Meanwhile, of course, the sound that 10 F-16s makes would be probably considered... Uh, gigantic, while like we hear about in many UFO sightings, this this UFO reportedly was absolutely silent. Exactly, That's and correct. because because we're on this path, you know, from Fort Worth to the Brownwood Military Operating Area, mm-hmm. the people here are familiar with the way S sixteen sound. I mean, they know what a jet sounds like because they do go back and forth over us for these training missions and um, anybody that reported that you talked to said no this was not this was not the jets that we're used to we know what they look like we know what they sound like this thing was huge and it had no sound whatsoever now Angela you had people calling you at the paper that you were working at giving you uh, accounts of what they saw that night. Uh, We're wondering, how many people actually got in touch with you right after this happened? Well, the first story printed on January the 10th, and that was the story with uh, that uh, is Steve Allen's account. So in that story, we ran his work phone number because he was looking for... uh, uh, photos and video. He just thought somebody must have gotten something. Mm-hmm. So um, he began receiving calls that morning, and so did I. And I'd say by the end of the day, easily, he probably had 60 phone calls, and I had just, just that many also. Here's a tough question perhaps to answer. Uh, we always assume with this topic that uh, we have signal and we have noise. And in the case of a sighting, you've got calls from someone like this fellow, Steve Allen, who's a a pilot, and one would assume that pilots make better observers of these type of aerial uh, phenomena than other types of people, even though uh, Seth Shostak would disagree with that, uh, which is, of course, laughable. But in terms of all of these calls, Angela, uh, what percentage of them would you give a high level of credibility to versus, let's say, a lower level of credibility? I would say, of, of course, I couldn't really thoroughly check out every every person that right. called me. You know, what I did was I, um, I chose a few to uh, talk with more in depth mm-hmm. and... Um, um, and uh, write about for the for the next day. One being a constable here, and um, because I'm from this area, I I know a lot of people, mm-hmm. and uh, of course that kind of gives me an an edge on credibility because I, I know um, a lot of the business people in town, and um, 
that sort of thing. But I would say 90, probably 97 percent of people that called were credible. I mean, um, I can only think of one or two that called and uh, were kind of, you know, maybe more about leading somebody astray, kind of a ridicule type thing. But, and, uh, and I think they were younger. They were kids, really. Right. Yeah, that's a, that's a, an enormously high percentage, which gives more credibility, of course, to the whole story of there being something that genuinely was a UFO that was seen. How about the descriptions of what was was seen? Was there generally a good a level of consistency of the descriptions of the lights and the objects? If I might, let me interject sure. one thing, too. Sure. I, th- this, this is all before what I call the frenzy effect. You know, right. this thing right. got legs and, and got out in the media, and, and of course, Angela deserves the credit for breaking it in regards to the mainstream media. But as as time went on, I mean, this thing just got nuts, and then then you get the frenzy effect, and then then anybody seeing anything in the sky mm-hmm. gets blown out of proportion, mm-hmm. in, in my view. So these those first call, the first couple of days, this is prior to the frenzy effect. And bear in mind, uh, if you go back to Steve Allen's sighting. This is where the object actually went to, from his perspective, and Mike Odom and Lance Jones, as they watch this thing, it goes right over Stephenville. Uh, so, you know, no surprise, there's going to be a lot of witnesses to that effect. But I think sure. those first calls, sure. the calls that she received uh, and the calls that Steve Allen received early on were very important and, uh, and prior to the, uh, the frenzy effect that happened later on. Right, which also involves right, media contamination at that point, right? You betcha. Well, you know, another thing, I had people that were calling not to say, I saw it too, but they they were calling saying, is this where we have all of these uh, military helicopters and things in the air? Have you found out what it was? What's going on? Why do we have this traffic? And since I was indoors, I really didn't realize that was going on. But... um, then when I went to lunch that day, I saw two transport helicopters uh, just, you know, like they were really, really low and uh, lower than usual. And I thought, oh, this is what everybody's talking about. So we had lots of phone calls about an increased military presence. Hmm. Very curious. Steve Allen told me that the very next day, he says the military traffic was so heavy you could have flown. This is a quote, by the way. He says the military traffic was so heavy the next day that if you would have flown a kite, you would have hit one of them. Uh, and he, he mentioned a myriad of uh, different aircraft. And in, in his perspective or his view, he felt that uh, it was as if, as if they were searching for something. Well, that sounds very telling. Hey, neighbors, the easiest online meeting service, GoToMeeting, just got easier. If you haven't tried GoToMeeting, now's the time, because the new version of GoToMeeting has fully integrated voice over IP. With this new total audio feature, you have more audio options by being able to conference through a phone or the web, save time, save money, and be more efficient. Hold an online meeting with GoToMeeting. Try GoToMeeting free for 30 days. Visit GoToMeeting.com slash podcasts. That's GoToMeeting.com slash podcasts for a free trial. 
Hi, this is Roger with eFoodsDirect.com, and I just wanted to welcome everyone from the Paracast Show. Hi to Gene and David and everybody out there. Listen, we're here to sponsor this radio show because we really like what Gene and what Dave are doing, and we'd like you to help us support them. Now, we are a long-term storable food company. However, the foods that we produce are low-moisture foods. They're very, very high quality, and you can live on them every day. You can literally cut your grocery bill in half or more than half, maybe as much as 60%, by buying bulk foods from eFoodsDirect.com. But right now, a recession slash depression is on the way. We're advising people to sell the toys in the garage, hawk off the old jewelry you don't use, pour the money into food supplies before it's too late. I'm telling you, it could be too late. We also can provide water filtration, other needs. Call eFoodsDirect.com and let us continue to support Gene and David here. 800-715-4380, 800-715-4380, or go to eFoodsDirect.com. That's eFoodsDirect.com, 1-800-715-4380. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. We're talking to Angela Joyner and Frank Warren, and we're focusing right now on the Stephenville, Texas case, which occurred in January in 2008. And I, we wonder here, kind of with the proximity, of course, to the Bush compound, were there people on the ground or was it strictly in the air, people coming there, Air Force, security, whatever? Um, I think it was mostly in the air. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Of course, I wasn't out and about because I couldn't get away from my telephone <laughs> or my email. Um, so um, I really didn't hear of any reports of an increase in traffic on the ground. It was uh, mainly increase in the air. Interestingly enough, that, that was overlooked early on. If you recall, when, when everyone uh, started to look into the Stephenville incident, Nobody thought about the uh, close proximity to the Bush Ranch at the time. That was an afterthought. In fact, I think Don Ledger was the first one to bring that up. And, uh, and of course, you have the no-fly zone. Uh, I believe, and Angela, uh, you probably know more about this than I do, but if memory serves, if Bush is there, it's a 15-mile no-fly zone, I think. And then if he's not, it, it's five. Does that sound about right? I'm not sure what the exact um, mileage would be on that. I was thinking 10, so it's been a while now. I did read up on it, but I'm a little foggy on that now. But I do know if he is there, um, you know, the area gets larger. Actually, um, I had quite a few phone calls early on wanting to know if this could have something to do with Bush's ranch. And so I did uh, make some, uh, do some research and, and make a couple of calls, and um, Bush was not at that ranch that night. Hmm. Now, Angela, okay. how many stories did you run about this in uh, hmm. in the Empire Tribune? How many stories total did you end up running about this uh, this event? You know, I'm not really sure. I've ever counted, but I would. It was a number say, of them, right? Yeah, there were there were several. Stories, maybe ten or twelve, I guess. What was the reaction of uh, management at the paper 
as these stories were coming out. How did, you know, what, what happened behind closed doors, I guess, is the question. No. Well, the publisher was really in tune to the UFO story. She liked the idea, and um, the editor uh, had left early the, the day that Steve called me, and um, when she saw the headline when the paper came to her home that morning, she told me she cried that um, it upset her so that um, she felt that, you know, it looked like a tabloid, that we were going to be ridiculed and, um, you know, different things. So the uh, editor really never had a, a good feeling about a UFO story. Hmm. But as time went on, you know, it's a very small paper. I was the only full-time reporter. We had a half-time reporter and a sports writer and a news clerk and the editor, and, and that was the newsroom, so to speak. So I was usually responsible for getting two front-page stories done a day and then two uh, weekend pages for Sunday paper I put together. So during this time, I really couldn't fulfill my duties. I was lucky to get one story done for the front page a day. And um, it was quite a strain on that staff. And um, I was asked to drop the whole UFO thing. And um, I was still getting all these calls. And my email was just incredible. And I said, okay, you know, what do I do with these all these people and the emails and all of that? And she said, just ignore them. Just get off of this and let's get back to regular business. Yeah. Makes you wonder how often that usually goes on in the real world. Personal question, Angela. Before this all happened, what was your own personal level of interest in this topic, and what did you think about this before you, you got involved in this situation? I really had no interest in UFOs. If I saw something on television, you know, I might watch it and think, hmm, that's interesting, and uh, go on and, and never think another thing about it. So I really did not know the history of UFOs. I didn't know anybody that uh, did. So um, it was all sort of dropped in my lap. And in the last year, I've, I've really uh, learned a lot. And uh, thanks to people like Frank and, and others that have helped sort of catch me up, I'm a, I'm a little bit better than I was. but. Um, now I have great interest in UFOs. I read about everything I can. I talk to a lot of people. Um, since I have um, gone to a couple of conferences because I was asked to speak, I met a lot of people, really knowledgeable people. And that's one of the things I've been so impressed with are the people in this field are very intelligent people. They're not, um, you know... <laughs> A lot of people, myself included, before I got involved, you know, think, well, this is just a bunch of kooks. That's mm -hmm. not the case. You know, they're very smart. A lot of them have PhDs, um, science backgrounds, you know, studied this phenomenon for years. And it's not people wearing full hats at these conferences like, like the, probably a lot of the general public would think. Well, of course, the, you know, the problem with this topic is that ultimately, in many circles, it is tainted. I know that I had seen you at the X conference last year in Gaithersburg, Maryland, and we've had Stephen Bassett on the show a number of times, and I've had some interesting personal discussions with him. But my own take 
on, for example, the X conferences is that you have, it's about, a, I would say, a 70-30 split. You have 70% of people who are ready to hug the Space Brothers and, uh, and offer them pie and coffee. And then you have about 30% of people who I think really understand that this is a very deep enigma and don't expect to have very easy answers. And that sort of leads me to my next question to you. When you went to the X conference, Angela, uh, you, you got to meet a lot of people who believe that the government uh, should release all the information that they have. And at the same time is a movement, the exopolitical movement, that sort of posits that we should have some sort of formal political interactions with these beings. What's your what's your, your take on that? Because, again, you're an interesting control subject in that you, you came into this very fresh, uh, had this very intense set of, uh, of interactions with people who were seeing things, and then got exposed to the, uh, the harder core group of people, many of whom see this as almost a surrogate belief system. So I'm, I'm wondering what your take was on the whole exopolitical sort of theme that was presented at X Conference, and if you think there's something to that. You know, one of the things that was difficult for me was the uh, number of conspiracy theories out there. So, um, <laughs> you know, I would uh, get on the Internet and uh, try to read about something, and then uh, I would think, gosh, you know, maybe this is true. And then uh, through uh, people like Frank that would help me, no, 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 this one's already been proven that it's not true or you know, there's just a ton of information out there. You know, I do think that the government should be more transparent, that some of those files that are 60 years old, what the heck, release them. Why does it matter at this point? It can't be a matter of national security. And I think that was sort of the overall theme of the um, XCON was, okay, these really old files, you know, what is the point of, of uh, not releasing them? Mm -hmm. Do you think you'd go to another X conference? I don't know. Uh, sure, I would be open to the idea. Um, that was an extremely busy conference for me. Um, I could hardly go in and listen to any uh, speakers because I had so many interview requests myself. As a, you know, it was an entirely different from the Ozark Conference in Eureka Springs that I had, had just come from. So uh, the Ozark Conference was a lot more laid back, but I was really, really busy there. So, you know, but I met people like Grant Cameron, Timothy Good, um, Robert Emmenager, uh Linda Howe, you know, all have been very supportive and uh, have provided me with a wealth of information. I think it's important to point out too, David, that uh, the in terms of the public's mindset, uh, I don't think I don't think that through that lens they don't see the distinction uh, right. between people embracing the Space Brothers and and, and ufology in general. I, I think they just lump it all together. No, you're absolutely right. Uh, absolutely right. And, yes. And Angela is a prime example of that. I mean, she was ignorant to most of this prior to this personal experience. And correct me if I'm wrong, although you're not a direct uh, witness, this is a life-changing event for you, obviously. I mean, I mean, here well, you yes. are. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it has been life-changing for me um, because uh, at the time of this sighting, after the first couple of stories came out, my world just became so much larger 
people were contacting me from Finland, from Japan, from the UK. I remember one of the uh, first emails that I received was from Timothy Good. And it was, to me, it was just somebody telling me about a book and, and he was trying to tell me what his credentials were. And I was like, well, so what? Who is this? And then later on, I realized, you know, oh, that was that. This is the man that, that emailed me. And, um, <laughs> it was, uh, because I, I wasn't familiar with the books that were out there and, and, and the authors and, people that had done research i really had never heard of them right right yeah no it's a whole subculture it's a whole yeah he's actually a fantastic i believe violinist there's a whole subculture to this thing that for the public is mostly invisible they don't really see it and it's probably better for them because they in many cases i think would not be too uh, impressed by what they'd seen uh angela so you run these stories at the paper now you're no longer with the paper so what happened well, after um, I was told to ignore those uh, witnesses, um, particularly the witnesses like Steve Allen, Constable Gayton, Ricky Sorrells, they didn't want me to talk to them anymore. And um, this was something that thrust them in the limelight, and they had no idea how to deal with it, and um, I didn't feel that I could abandon those people that way. So it really put me in a uncomfortable position. So what I tried, I tried to honor the newspaper's wishes, and I started forwarding those emails to my home computer so I could address them at home. Mm-hmm. And any phone calls I tried to handle during my lunch hour or after hours. I really remember uh, one time uh, Robert Powell, with uh, he's the co-author of the radar report he wasn't at that time but uh wanted to meet me for dinner and um the editor you know called me in and said look i told you to drop this now i hear that you're going to dinner with that MUFON guy i said well it's on my own time so i thought that would be okay you know she kind of rolled her eyes that sort of thing so it was so uncomfortable for me that i just ended up um giving my notice and then um a week into my notice, I came to work, and my computer and my Rolodex were gone, and uh, I was asked to pack my things and go. She no, that's a little just bit faster. Absolutely bit faster. despicable. I've, I've gone through that in radio broadcasting. The same exact problem. Exact problem. Where they hand you the check or something and say goodbye. I can't say goodbye to my listeners. No, can't do that. Fate Magazine is proud to be celebrating its 60th anniversary and its 700th issue. That's 60 years of bringing you true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. It's bigger and better than ever. Subscribe now by calling 1-800-728-2730 or online at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. You are Luke Anarchist with Jesus and David Danny. 
We're talking to Angela Joyner and Frank Warren, focusing on the Stephenville, Texas case and the aftermath. So where did you end up? You're currently working at a different paper. Well, actually, I'm a correspondent for the Abilene Reporter News, and um, really that's just, that means that I freelance, and um, I work from home, and uh, they send me stories, you know, just regular, anything from uh, Christmas tree recycling to some sort of um, medical flu-type story or something like that. It's a wide range of topics that that I do for that paper, and I just work from home here. Mm-hmm. Just out of curiosity, uh, when they, they took your Rolodex, your computer have been confiscated. They give you any kind of rationale behind that? I mean, assuming you had like a personal relationship with these people, you're, you're living in a small town where things get around. Did you confront the publisher and the editor with this and say, why, why are you doing this? Well, the uh, computer was in the publisher's office and they, they called me. It was sitting on a table and um, they called me into that um, office, for, you know, when I first arrived mm-hmm. and um, it was it was not a pleasant experience and um, they um, felt that um, I, I was looking for another job which the only thing I had done on my computer was because I am a um, I have a teaching degree I did uh, email the administrative office in Stephenville to see what I needed to do to get up to speed so I could substitute teach because obviously I'm wondering, okay, I have quit my job without another job and um, that seemed like a, a quick source of income if, if I could just substitute teach. But sure. I can honestly say that's the only job type thing that I did on on my email on that computer. Now, I had an um, interview that day with uh, the Dallas Morning News and I did it on my lunch. I was going to do it on my lunch hour. And it was for a follow-up story they were going to do. But I think that they probably heard that that was a job interview for me because they said, you know, what's up with the Dallas Morning News? Are you going to go work for them? And I said, look, no, um, I have this interview, but it's for the story they want to do. And... Um, I couldn't move to Dallas if I wanted to. You know, I have a high school age child, and I wouldn't uproot her that way. And uh, it was just a really ugly confrontation. And um, sounds like sour grapes on their part, in my view. I mean, the, the, you know, that just—it's just ridiculous. It, it, it sucks, it's as a they small say. Small example of things that go on on a larger scale. Uh, and I mean, how do you ignore the news of something of that proportion? Uh, it's, it's just despicable, I think. Another, um, you know, I, well, something that would say what their attitude was, I suppose, but that first time we were on um, Larry King Live, um, the editor and the publisher left the day before for a conference, and so we were already, you know, um, stretched to the limits, and... Um, 
they said, oh, yeah, you can you can handle all this. We'll, we're leaving. We're going to the conference. And it was a madhouse in that little office. And, and um, you know, maybe they didn't even realize, you know, the scope of the story at that time. I'm not sure. Now, you went on the Larry King show, Angela, uh, with some of the other witnesses, and you were talking about this. And I can't remember whether it was Shostak or Magaha. I think it was actually Magaha, who they had as their uh, as their debunker. Um, and you can correct me if I'm wrong about that, but I believe that's who it was because I remember him saying something to a couple of the witnesses that was just despicable. You know, just taking a, an absolutely confrontational stance. What was your feeling about that whole experience? Uh, you know, did you feel that the Larry King people were treating the subject with any? sense of uh of respect or, or or realism or did you get the sense that to them this was sort of something goofy to get some ratings numbers well uh, we've been on that show twice um once <laughs> soon after the signing in january and once in july i got the idea from the producers that that worked the show on this end okay right that they were serious and um, they were truly interested in, uh, you know, what had happened and what, what was going on. I think, um, you know, everybody expects Larry King to have a debunker on the show. I mean, that's his format, and that's, you know, in journalism, that's what you do. You present both sides. So I remember uh, James Fox was on the first one, mm-hmm. and um, he asked a question that I thought was really out of line, and um, I can't remember. It was something about, are you sure it wasn't a comment or a something like that? And I thought, yeah. Well, later on, after I got to know James, um, I go, why did you ask that question? It was not a good question. And he said, because... I knew the debunker was going to ask it, and I wanted to get it out of the way. <laughs> right, right, absolutely. And, that, and, and by the way, in, in watching that episode, uh, I, I thought that was well done. I didn't, and, and I don't think the viewing audience took that in the wrong way either. Uh, I, I thought that was pretty sharp on James's part to do that, particularly dealing with the the, the, the debunkers that the Larry feels that he has to have on the show, which, quite frankly, I think is ridiculous. But yeah. Angela, I wanted to focus on something here which just struck me as we were talking before. Did your employers, and maybe we're getting into the paranoid realm here, but the question, I guess, has to be out there. Did your employers act this way, this narrow-minded approach that they took prior to you getting involved in this UFO case? Did you ever see this before? How long had you been working with them? I had been there 18 months. And um, we had a very good working relationship, I thought. Like you said, it was a small paper. So you get to know people very well. Um, You know, they're not only your coworkers, but um, you know something about their personal life. You know, if somebody's going on vacation, oh, can you, would you uh, mind uh, feeding my dog? And here's the key to my house. And we were pretty, pretty tight knit group. Now this mm-hmm. paper, and, uh, mm-hmm. this paper is it owned by a national corporation or is it locally owned? No, it was owned by a corporation. It, it had changed hands, and uh, you know, like what's happened uh, lately. You know, lots of newspapers are 
are struggling and, and changing hands. But uh, I think when I left, it was owned by a company in Australia. Hmm. But, uh, no, I had never felt that before. Um, I never felt that I had to walk on eggshells like I was uh, after the some of the UFO stories. It was just the way things turned out um, is something I would have never predicted. I thought I would work there a long, long time. I really loved my newspaper job. It could never be proved, of course, but did you ever think maybe corporate came down on the local management and said, you know what? We can't let her become this UFO personality, shut her down. The only thing corporate worries about is money. And that was a record sales month for that paper. So um, I don't think that they cared one way or the other. You know, they're happy with the, when the numbers are good, um, you know, when sales are good, when the ad revenue's up. I don't think that had one thing to do with it. You would think it would have the opposite effect, that they would embrace the story for those very reasons. Well, conspiracy exactly. theorists would also suggest, you know what, maybe the government, maybe somebody from the Bush White House came there and said, you know what, shut this lady down because you'll be in a heap of trouble. If that were the case, you know, um, I think they would have shared that with me somehow. Um, you know, if they had been told not to tell me, they would have figured out a way to let me know it, they would not have been as vicious as they as they were. So <laughs> I don't think that that happened. Um, anything's possible, but my personal feeling is no. They decided, you know, that um, they got some flack from from city council members or you know upper echelon type people of Stephenville that said, "God, we do not want this publicity. We're the cowboy capital." of the world we want to stay that way you know so they didn't want to become the next roswell is what i kept hearing around town were they also and, seeing uh, lots of outsiders coming in there to maybe fill the hotel rooms with people looking for ufos in the night yeah wouldn't that be awful you know if some hotel <laughs> rooms were filled and people restaurants were filled and uh revenue for the town was up i mean yes that was happening there was a there's a small um retailer here for t-shirts and things and um they did uh the owner told me they did ninety thousand dollars worth of business with their ufo t-shirts in 10 days wow. the uh, high school science club did a t-shirt and um had to cut off their sales after two weeks, but they made $4,000. It was the biggest fundraiser they'd ever had. So um, isn't that terrible that uh, people were making money off of this siding and, and the, the city wanted it to uh, disappear? So, I'm, you know, I never really understood that. I understand that our heritage is in the professional cowboys that live here and have some of them have lived here for years, and uh, and that's fine. But I think there's room for both. It's, that's the way I feel about it today. Now, after you left the paper, was there any impact or consequences in terms of the people you were in touch with? People saying, why isn't she there anymore? Anybody complain or what? Well, as a matter of fact, there were a lot of complaints because the only time that I have spoken with, any, with the publisher, she called me about... Um, Four days afterward, it said, Angela, what is going on? We are being inundated with 
phone calls, with emails, with faxes, accusing us of firing you, and you know that's not the case. You gave your resignation, and can you do something to help us? And um, I said, well, I think because the way that things went down, you didn't let me complete my notice, my two-week notice, that some people see that as, as being fired. So, I, you know, what I did was I did uh, contact some people and said, you know, if you're calling the newspaper or writing them letters, um, let's, let's don't do that. Let's leave them alone. And I let her know in an email that I had done that, and she said, thank you. She said, I think the city will thank you, too. So evidently the city was getting some flack over it. I know they did get a lot of flack over it. Let's look at Stephenville again. Now let's look at the aftermath. Now we have the radar issue here. Now if you go back to the history of UFOs, which you've begun to learn, part of that, of course, is when you have radar and visual sightings, there's always some kind of excuse, you know, it was temperature inversions, it was this, that, and the other thing. What kind of weather, what kind of climate are we dealing with in this part of Texas in January? Well, it was a clear, cloudless night, and um, it was cold, um, uh, but not, uh, we didn't have any ice or anything like that, uh, I remember. So we're talking about, what, 30s, 40s at night? Yeah, something like that. Okay. Mm -hmm. okay. And then during the day, we we're talking about maybe 50s, 60s. Right. So it's not a temperature inversion, which would often happen when you're in a summer kind of condition. Has any excuse been given by the authorities with regard to this particular case? No. I would say there's nobody's really said anything. That was one huge disappointment that I had um, because when that radar report was finished and it confirmed that uh, eight witnesses uh, in time and direction that this unknown confirmed their uh, statements and you know it was actually on radar I was very disappointed that the uh, national media did not pick up that story I worked really hard to get that released on uh, Larry King. They were already coming here, but they had a different idea for the show. So I had to convince them, you know, that this was really big news. And um, I sent out media packets to all those that had already been here, like Good Morning America and, and some of the others. And it was totally ignored by mainstream media. And I just felt like they were missing a huge part of the story. But uh, they reported the sizzle, and and they like to report the sizzle, and then you give them the steak, and they and that goes on page ten. Yeah, radar's got to be a lot more than just sizzle and steak, it, because it seems like such a significant factor. This is significant. We're going to have Angela and Frank continue on hour two of the Powercast. <laughs> Ray Perkins, a reclusive veteran burned out from the Gulf War, lives tortured by relentless, perplexing nightmares. Nightmares of a horrific battle in deep space and of a mysterious woman suffering in agony for her devastated world. A woman not yet born, calling across centuries to him. Then, a coincidence leads him to his destiny, his chance to alter the universe. 
Attack of the Rockoids. The former fiction editor for Star Wars and Indiana Jones, Robert Simpson, writes, The soul of the novel Attack of the Rockoids lies in its heart and passion for building a convincing tale of a love that spans a galaxy. A thrilling story. Attack of the Rockoids is available now. Read a sample chapter and get a special discount off of the cover price at our website, rockoids.com. That's R-O-C-K-O-I-D-S dot com. Attack of the Rockoids, a novel in the grand science fiction tradition. Welcome back to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Vietti. Back part two with... Frank Warren and Angela Joyner. Notice how I give everybody equal billing, and since we were emphasizing Angela as a new friend of the show on our number one, I felt Frank should not feel neglected. You don't feel neglected now, Frank, right? Not at all, and uh, and, and we want to uh, acknowledge Angela and her contributions as much as we can. I, as I said earlier, my hat is certainly off to her and, and her, all of her efforts and continuing efforts in regards to ufology. Angela, we have talked a lot about the background of the Stephenville case and of course about your personal history. We have the radar situation. Are there any other key important facts that people just aren't hearing about Stephenville that we should know about this case? I think people should know that uh, sightings have continued. October 23rd there was a sighting as a matter of fact, uh, probably uh, the whole junior high stadium at the football game saw uh, something unexplainable. And then November 18th um, was another sighting, and I, been, I interviewed two people then that actually saw a craft, not just lights. So, um, you know, it is an ongoing phenomena here. Um, I think people would like to uh, finally, you know, have some some branch of government or military or somebody, you know, step up and say, we're investigating this or, you know, we know what it is and it's nothing for you to be concerned about. It's a matter of national security, but that doesn't happen. So um, I'm, I'm not sure that would ever happen. I I know a lot of people here um, are much more observant, including me, than we used to be. And, um, like, for instance, I had never seen flares dropped here. And then all of a sudden in October when the sighting started again, we had tremendous amounts of flares being dropped. And um, uh, That's not so familiar. You know, why are they doing this? What is going on? We never see this. The Officer X that... Um, I continue to communicate with. He's one of the three um, officers that saw the craft on January the 8th. He called me and said, Angela, um, I was born in the Stephenville Hospital. He's in his uh, 40s. Uh, he said, I've never seen flares dropped like this. I I've never seen any flares dropped at all. And he started getting pictures of them, and he wanted to know if I knew what was going on. I said, the only thing that I can think of is they know that something's back here, and, and they're doing this so that they can say, oh, um, yes, we were there, we were dropping flares, and that's what people saw. Maybe they're learning from the Phoenix Lights, you see. That's what Frank was implying sure. before. Yeah. Angela, about this stadium incident, could you give us some details on that? I hadn't heard about this. Gina, had you heard about this one? No, no, I haven't. 
Angela, what happened? Because you're, you're implying that a lot of people saw something, and when you've got exactly. a mass sighting, that those are always much more interesting, I think, mm-hmm. in terms of credibility. So what happened? On October 23rd, actually, the first thing that happened for me was my husband called me outside and said, come and look at this. And I went out, and it was flares. And I'm standing out in the yard looking at these flares being dropped. Well, my own brother called me and said, are you looking at the UFO? I said, no, I'm looking at flares. He's talking to his wife, and he says, Angela says, it's flares. And he says, I've got to go. I'll uh, call you back. And um, he actually ended up getting a picture of a partial picture. He was... It was with a cell phone, so, you know, it wasn't that great. But um, he was driving by the uh, stadium for the junior high football uh, game, and he said at the same time they pulled over, other people pulled over and started getting out of their cars. It was lights, but the thing about it was they were not full because they were horizontal and then they would move into a vertical position and go out and then come back on horizontal, move mm. up into the vertical position, go out, and this happened five or six times. Flares don't go up. They come down. So that, and plus they remained equidistant from each other. And so... Right. Um, isn't that configuration somewhat similar to what Steve Allen uh, recounted Absolutely. When, yeah. when the object was over Stephenville proper? Mm-hmm. Exactly. The strange light, yeah. Well, I just think it's important that we qualify one thing. Um, it's true that if you drop flares, they move downwards. So there might be people thinking, well, what if you attach flares to balloons? Would the flares not move upwards? And the answer to that is yes, but it would be very hard to have a series of flares attached to balloons move in any kind of a predictable formation with respect to one another. That would, that would be much tougher to do. I think it just, and remain equidistant. Absolutely. That's correct. That's correct. So um, the newspaper that I used to work for, they also started getting uh, phone calls, and, um, you know, they did a story, and it said, um, they're back was the headline. So they they began getting just tons of phone calls, and um, there's a town on uh, 281 south of here called Heiko. They um, also did a story, and <laughs> it was a football game, and they interviewed the uh, official, one of the football officials, and a player that saw it. And so, um, you know, it, there were numerous sightings, but... I'm not in a uh, place where um, people can contact me readily like I was before. So probably the newspaper got, you know, a whole bunch more calls than I did. Angela, didn't, didn't uh, in regards to the football game, didn't they report that jets were scrambled? Is that correct or no? Um, yes, I believe so, yes. Um, it does seem that every time we have a signing, there are uh, jets involved also. So the assumption, again, would be that whatever it was is was pervious to radar, again. Well, this time, the thing about it is, if it's below about 2,800 feet, it's below the radar. Right. So 
For October 23rd, we thought that at times it might have been higher than that. So we have sent FOIAs for that uh, FAA data. For the November the 18th sighting, um, there were fewer uh, people, um, but one was a former military uh, person, and um, it was so low that uh, we knew it was below the radar, so we didn't we didn't send FOIAs for that one. Looking at the report for Heiko, uh, one witness claims, uh, "quote First, I saw six or seven jets flying in formation." But this thing with two sets of lights was so much larger than any of those aircraft. Then all of a sudden it just vanished, a fellow by the name of Wheeler. And, and again, that's very similar uh, to uh, what Steve Allen had seen uh, nine months earlier. Uh, exactly. Now, Angela, you mentioned that uh, there were photos taken of this thing in, in October, right? My brother took a photo of uh, what he saw, but he didn't capture... Um, the entire uh, span of lights, he, you know, he got a partial photo of it. Um, if there are other photos, um, I'm not sure. I know uh, there was a family here in Dublin uh, that uh, took a video uh, that was aired on uh, WFAA Channel 8 here. So um, th- that's the thing is... Most of the time, people don't have cameras with them, so they end up using their cell phone camera, and it's it's not a quality photo. But now, in the case of the Stevensville uh, sighting, I seem to remember there being somebody who had a camcorder who had steadied it on a fence or on some kind of a surface and had shot the lights. So I'm just wondering that was whether... David, that was David Coran, but that he was on his front porch... And brace the the camera up against the post of his front porch. But since that time, I think it's been uh, fairly well proven that because his camera was in a not alive mode, there was really no way to determine what if he was seeing an unknown object, a star, a planet, or what. Because this not alive mode causes uh this streaky yeah these are all that we called it the neon snake <laughs> right okay so basically you had a good amount of shake involved and uh, what was happening was that it was leaving essentially an after image that even if you stabilize the video what you'd be seeing would be mostly after image uh, essentially the the visual equivalent of contrails and not distinct points discrete points of light Exactly. Yeah, okay. So that was inconclusive as to, you know, if you use that uh, JBC camera with a not alive mode and shoot a street light, you can get the same effect for a star or a planet. So, And sadly, much like the Phoenix Lights flare video, that got a lot of airtime because of the visual effect via Mm -hmm. the mainstream media. There was a lot of attention paid to that. Uh, you know, this is uh, another example uh, of the chaff uh, being focused on opposed to the wheat. Right. Same exact thing with the Phoenix Lights. Anytime the Phoenix Lights is mentioned, you always see. Oh, the you always see that video. video. Yeah, you always see the same thing. It's like, oh my God. Well, just like so many, so much of the time when you see 
the topic of UFOs discussed, you see highly ridiculous Swiss images being thrown up as UFOs. And, yeah, it's very frustrating. Right. It, it, it's, it's a big it part of the reason there's a curtain of laughter around this topic still. It's, it's extremely frustrating. So, Angela, a question for you. As far as any further interest in, in uh, documenting this stuff as a journalist, have you been writing for anybody about these topics? Or is this just sort of something that you, you, you're dealing with the aftermath, but you've not become uh, really involved in any way in continuing to cover this from a journalistic point of view? Well, um, the Abilene Reporter News did run a story I did on the November the 18th sighting. Hmm. Uh, That's the last uh, published piece I have. Okay. Okay. And you haven't been in touch with your counterpart or replacement over at the paper you left with regard mm. to their coverage? Well, she uh, did an, an opinion piece in the paper after the stories that she wrote. I think she wrote two, saying that she was forced to write those UFO stories and she did not want to, to do it. Um, she felt it would ruin her career and she was just starting out. She's rather young. And the editor um, forced her to do it. So, you know, she made sure that she got it out into the community that she didn't do those stories by choice. And I've never spoken with her personally, no. Hi, this is Bill Burns from UFO Magazine and UFO Hunters. You know, there are several ways that you can get UFO, UFO Magazine. Magazine. Yeah, we know, Bill. We know, we know, we know. Just shut up. Just give us one way. Don't tell us you're psychic and, you know, give 8,000 phone numbers and take 15 minutes of our time where we just want to hear the show. Just tell us how we can get UFO Magazine in one way. Okay, okay. Just go to www.ufomag.com. Subscribe online. You happy? Yeah, was that so hard? Actually, harder than you know. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. talking to Frank Warren and Angela Joyner, focusing on the Stephenville UFO case, not just the original, but the one later in the year. Now, having probed into Stephenville, have people come forward to say they've had other things happen to them, not just UFOs, but other strange events? Okay. I haven't had anybody contact me saying, you know, they were abducted or or anything like that. Um, I haven't had anybody report missing time or some of those things that, you know, go along with a sighting like this. So I would have to say what, no. what about Well, wait a minute. Now, maybe not on that side of it, but what about Ricky Sorrell's, all the things, the, the military aspect of that, the phone calls and the threats and the, so forth and so on? Well, yes. Um, now, Ricky Sorrell's, he is the only person that I know of that had a daytime sighting, and it was back in mid-December before the January the 8th sighting. So uh, he went to work and, and told uh, 
his uh, co-workers, you're not going to believe what I've seen. And, and they were like, yeah, you know, what were you drinking or whatever? They didn't mm-hmm. believe him. And then he, when this first story comes out, he, he has people bringing him the newspaper just absolutely crowding around his desk going, look, look, is this what you were talking about? Well, I didn't talk to Ricky Sorrells in the very beginning, but the Associated Press did. So he ended up being splashed, uh, that video splashed all over the world. And because he had a daytime sighting, he had a lot more detail. He said he walked underneath this thing while he was um, deer hunting. It was a barn metal gray, had cone-shaped indentions, he lived in a heavily wooded area, so as he looked up, he was looking up through the uh, canopy of the trees there, and he couldn't see um, whether he couldn't see the edges of it. He knew it was big though, and uh, he couldn't determine exactly how large because of the tree line there. I knew of Ricky's uh, story certainly because of the AP. And um, he didn't talk to me in the beginning, but uh, a few days afterwards, you know, he did call me and said he wanted to come and talk to me, and I said, fine. So he comes in, and he starts telling me what's happening. Um, He's having helicopters fly very, very low over his property, and he has a full-time job, but he he has cattle and, and some other farm animals, so... These helicopters were disturbing the cows, and um, he was not happy about that. And then he gets a phone call from someone that identified themselves as military and uh, said they wanted to come out and talk with him. So he refused that, and he said, you know, he'd done about all the interviews he wanted to do. And uh, it, it got into a heated conversation, and he said that he had the feeling so much so that he got up and looked at the gate to be sure nobody was coming through, that this guy was going to come on anyway and knew where he lived. And and, uh, he actually said, you know, why are you flying your helicopters over my airspace? And and the military guy retorted, it's not your airspace, it's mine. And to make a long story short, you know, he said, you know, if you quit talking about what you've seen, I'll stop the helicopters. And so Ricky stopped talking, and I did a story about that. And um, then um, you're going to have to help me, Frank. Well, I'm just curious, uh, what do you guys feel, Angela, you specifically because you dealt with uh, Ricky Sorrells, what do you think about his character and credibility? This is always a huge issue. Right, I mean... That's one thing that I was concerned about. So I did... um, you know, I, I interviewed some of his uh, co-workers, and, um, see, I knew the Sorrell's name to be, um, you know, a familiar name. They've mm-hmm. been here, you know, a long time. But I, right. I didn't know Ricky, and and I did do some investigation, and um, everyone said he was a straight arrow. Um, the constable, Leroy Gayton, uh, knew him, and... Um, and had known him for a number of years. So um, he seemed very credible. If you ever get a chance to talk with Ricky, he's very down to earth. He's very, uh, he's a hard working 
man trying to take care of his family. Very blunt, you know. He'll tell you like it is. Well, supposedly... Didn't he eventually do... I think he did one show, either a documentary or maybe possibly one on Larry King, albeit reluctantly. He did the July the 11th Larry King, and um, that was the first time that he had um, been interviewed, uh, really. Uh, So, you know... There was a little concern, okay, well, now he's uh, coming out in the public again, so, you know, what's going to happen? But um, we kind of talked about wondering if those helicopters are going to start coming back over, but they didn't. Hmm. I'm seeing here in one of the stories that you wrote, Angela, that he claims to have shot some cell phone footage. Did you ever get to see that? Yes, I did see the cell phone footage, but it was so pixelated it wasn't really something you'd want to put out there because people are just going to, you know, say, well, it's nothing. It's just, you know, it was very pixelated. And, um, you know, you you have his account uh, to go along with it, which is good. But um, I, I told him I just I didn't think we should put that footage out there because it's just going to cause him more problems and, you know, nobody's going to believe that because it's, it wasn't, it just wasn't good footage. Mm-hmm. So he describes this thing as, a, I'm reading your article here, he describes this thing as a metallic craft uh, the size of uh, the length of three or four football fields. So one of the things that always comes up in, in these discussions are estimates of size and altitude. There are a lot of people that, that feel that it's really hard to gauge the size of something if it's above a certain altitude. Well, this is important, I, I feel, and, 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 and actually uh, Ricky Sorrells uh, kind of shores up Steve Allen's story. The, something very important to remember about Steve Allen, number one, he's a pilot for 30 years. Number two, he right. was raised in that area uh, just like Angela was. You can't get a better witness in regards to uh, distances and elevations and so forth and so on. He knows that vicinity. So while he was, when he witnessed the event, uh, you know, he could look and say, well, wait a minute, that's over by so-and-so's property. It's coming in at such and such a speed. You can't get a better witness than that, in my view, uh, you know, in regards to a pilot that has flown in that specific uh, vicinity for 30 years. Right. So and then later on, or, or well, uh, in the same time frame, then you have, or actually prior to that with the Sorrells event, he describes another very large craft. So to me, that shores up what Steve Allen uh, had witnessed, and and of course him being the the top of the list uh, in regards to being a solid witness based on his uh, experience as a pilot and knowing that general vicinity so well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. So to, uh, what the debunkers might say about the witnesses and whatnot. Yeah. Well, no, it's clear that the debunkers are basically just out to shoot down the cases completely. They're not interested in any kind of facts. Uh, to them, all anecdotal evidence. Is not re- it's irrelevant. It was just sad. It is interesting, though, that we haven't had the debunkers uh, rip apart that radar report. Nobody challenged it. I know when it first came out, there were a lot of, of uh, ufologists looking at it and, uh, and you know, dotting the I's, crossing the T's. And uh, to date, no one has uh, found any error in that report. So uh, I, I think that's interesting that uh, usually, you know, you would have, I think you would have, and Frank would know this better than me, 
you would have debunkers trying to uh, say, well, the radar data wasn't good data or um, this thing here in this part of the report doesn't match up to this other part of the report, and that hasn't happened as far as I know, right, Frank? That's correct. You wonder where Bill Nye is on that one. <laughs> Why? Or, or any of them. Where's, yeah. where, how are you going to debunk that one, Bill? You know. Well, they can't. They're just selective. There's, listen, they're, they're guilty of the same things that extreme believers are guilty of, just complete selectivity. And uh, like Stan Freeman says, don't bother me with the facts my mind's already made up. Right. Well, the, the other thing, too, and I, and I always, to me, that's comical, but uh, show stacks on record. Uh, it, in fact, ironically, McGahey, who, in my view, makes a fool out of himself the majority of the time, he probably knows more than anybody. At least he's done a little bit of research. But uh, show stacks, Shermer, they've all come out and said, well, you know, we really haven't looked into this. Uh, I'm not a ufologist. I mean, how, how do you condemn the book if you haven't read it? So uh, they should be disqualified, you know. Well, yeah, you can't, you're not. Don't even come to the table. What are you talking about? Go read the book, then get back to me. Uh, well, you know, if I don't read a book or read the book as much of the book as I should, David will come after me. He should, of course. You know, we don't have a producing staff where they could study this. We don't have anybody who could give us talking points. We have to do it ourselves, and we do the best we can. But when somebody is being presented as a skeptic, present the other point of view, and it's fair to have another point of view. We want responsible skepticism. But these people go on these shows, and they don't read anything. They don't do anything. They just wing it. They make it up as they go well, along. It, and more importantly, Gene, they're coming, their argument is from a scientific perspective. Presumably, uh, yeah. It's just absolutely ridiculous. Uh, you, you know, do the research. Uh, you know, uh, come to the table with something, and then then make your points. Otherwise, it's just all hot air. Uh, it's it's absolutely ridiculous. Well, of course, what they'll do usually is just say uh, you can't conform any of these situations to any kind of scientific method. So science won't recognize. Well, no, I agree. I, I, I'm not arguing the point. I agree, but that's what they'll say. I think the other side of this that is unfortunate, that's very frustrating, is that for the, the, the mass market, for, for the mainstream of people who consume media, I think for a lot of them, the quote-unquote scientific skeptic, which is really a debunker, more closely mirrors their own attitude towards the whole thing. Because for a lot of people, especially for people who have never seen something, for people who have never had an experience, they either view this as entertainment or nonsense. They, to them, there's, there's nothing else besides those two options. And it's unfortunate. And I'm not saying this is good. As someone who's an experiencer, I find this deeply frustrating uh, because of the, of the fact that there's not a lot of intellectual honesty going on. You know, you, one thing that scientists don't like to say is, we don't know. They, only, they would rather talk about the things they do know versus the things they don't know. If you get them behind closed doors, they'll say, well, we don't know a whole lot. And uh, if you'll give me a grant, I'll study things that we don't know. But you know, that's how it comes down, because ultimately these scientists are people who are protecting careers and protecting reputations. And it's pretty clear, and Angela, I think this is part of the experience you went through, that getting involved with this topic in any kind of a serious way, it can be very poisonous, it can be very damaging to a career. 
the phenomenon unto itself, it's, it's, there, there exists a cognitive bias in society mm-hmm. uh, across the board with, with the best and the brightest, and we see examples of this all the time, including with the recent physicist out of Florida that attacked Stan Friedman. Right. Um, the, it, it, you know, this cognitive bias exists. We see it with Angela Joyner's former employers and with uh, her replacement. Uh, this exactly. cognitive bias uh, comes. It, it starts with us at an early age. We're programmed by society. These things right. are silly. That's how, that's what we're taught. Uh, you know, our brains are wrapped in a box early on, and you've got to get your. You know, you've got to get just down to ground zero, in my view, uh, to begin the trek to, to see things clearly. Okay, neighbors, did you know that food will make your future fearless? You know, we're going to have runaway inflation with all of these bailouts. And if you don't understand why, you'd better check it out or your life may depend on it. Before runaway inflation occurs, smart people are converting their paper money into gold and now gold into food. We've seen runaway inflation in other countries. The only way to survive is to buy things and stuff that we'll need later while the money and gold still have value. When a truckload of cash or several pounds of gold won't buy a loaf of bread, the only answer is to already have your own bread. Folks don't realize that with the worldwide famine and food shortages, food is about to become so precious that it will actually establish the value of gold until there is no food left at any price. Food will make your future fearless. Call 800-715-4380 or go on the web to efoodsdirect.com. Call 800-715-4380 or efoodsdirect.com. Hi, this is Don Ecker, and you are tuned into the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. Hey, let me tell you what. You're going to hear stuff here that you probably won't hear anywhere else. Hear that, George Snorri? Ground Zero means we're talking to Frank Warren and Angela Joyner. And we focused first on the Stephenville, Texas case, not just the first one, but a subsequent sighting and other events. And we're talking now about belief systems. And Frank, you have a lot of interesting thoughts there. But let me throw the other issue out, and maybe David will go along with this because we only have about a half hour left, and that is disclosure. 2008, we didn't have anything. 2009, we have a new administration. We have the co-head of the Obama transition team being someone who has been on record publicly as favoring disclosure about UFOs. So where do we go from there? Well, interestingly enough, and uh, and Gene, of course, you will recall this, but I I hearken back to the uh, Herbert Shermer case of 1967. And, uh, you know, whether you buy that or not, uh, but uh, in, in short, supposedly he was channeling an alien under hypnosis and the question uh, was uh, asked well you know why don't you expose yourselves why don't you drop down on the white house lawn or something to that effect and the answer was again supposedly from this alien being channeled through officer Shermer, was the fact that uh, that society at present wouldn't be able to take it and uh, in essence they were going to prime the pump I'm ad-libbing uh, to uh, basically to get uh, the, the populace ready for the, the so-called exposure. 
And interestingly enough, if if you look back, and I used to say it was it was common for me to say, well, if you go ten years back and ask, uh, you know, a, a dozen people if they believe in extraterrestrial life, for example, of course now I have to say forty years back, you know, the average person way back when, uh, the larger percentage would say, well, of course not, that's silly, uh, or the little green men or the little gray men or whatever. Well, if you ask those ten people today, they would say, well, of course. I mean, science. Uh, you know, mainstream science tells us that. Uh, obviously, there's going to be life out there somewhere. There, there might be microbial life right here in our own solar system. So the public's mindset has actually changed. And, and I go back to Shermer's incident in 67. So I often wonder, uh, is there any credence to the Shermer event? And is it, in, in fact, is that what's happening? Or is the pump being primed for the eventuality that uh, there will be exposure either either by the government, uh, one of the governments, or by an event. Uh, you know, our personal technology is, is advanced to such that, as Angela mentioned, you know, everybody's taking pictures of these things with their cell phone cameras. I mean, everybody's walking around with a camera on their hip. So when a large event does take place, uh, it's hard to uh, combat the excuses that the powers that be may come up with. Uh, you can't say it's swamp gas when you've got 10,000 people snapping a picture of it with their with their cell phone cameras. So, well, when you have you, a radar yeah. report. <laughs> you know, yeah, the radar well, report is hard is. evidence, and that's what everybody says they want. Okay, well, they'll say there's no hard evidence to confirm um, that people are aliens or visiting. I think there's hard evidence in the Stephenville case, and I think it's overlooked. Well, that's like the science that everybody asks for, and then and then when it's put on the table, it gets ignored. Case it gets in ignored exactly. <laughs> I mean, well, a radar report is much better than a picture. Absolutely. One of the things that I that I personally come to believe about this whole situation is that if there's to be uh, the next level of understanding or interaction, it will not be controlled from our side. We are at a, a very severe disadvantage here. And I think if we look at any relationship as having aspects of dominance and submission, it's it's pretty clear to me at least, and I don't know how anybody else feels about this, but um, we're dealing with something that is certainly technologically beyond us. And we are at a just a very obvious disadvantage. We do not determine agenda here. And I think that extends to members of our government, because when we talk about the government talking about this or revealing information, we're really talking about some covert faction within the government that has stuff that they're keeping from the rest of the government. So to assume that uh, President Obama can wave his wand and make disclosure happen, I think that speaks to a certain level of ignorance about how the world really works. Would it also happen, just to follow what you said, David, that when Obama takes the oath of office, someone will walk in there in a black suit or a dark suit and say, Mr. President, we need to let you know something. This is the way things are. Or would they just take the plausible deniability approach, which is don't tell the president. Do what they did in the movie Independence Day. Don't tell him about Area 51 and the aliens on ice. Just keep him out of the loop because the less he knows, the better. Well, in terms of uh, reality check, uh, Barack Obama has much bigger issues on his plate, I suspect, than the issue of disclosure. And as far as those of us interested in this topic feel that it has priority in our lives to some extent, certainly uh, I think it would st it would, it's still true to say that 
for a, a brand new president walking into a very bad situation the way that Barack Obama is, uh, it would be almost suicidal to try to open up this, this can of worms. And that's why I think Stephen Bassett is completely wrong about this idea that uh, the, the Obama administration is going to somehow blow the doors open on this in the spring because they have to. I think that's uh, that's optimistic at best and delusional at worst. The only thing that would make them want to do that, David, probably would be some external event. They don't control the agenda, and I agree with you that there are so many heavy things on this plate. Angela, what do you think about all this? Well, I know many in the UFO community were um, hopeful that since um, John Podesta was a leader in the uh, Obama transition team, right. that he would uh, somehow push things forward because he had already uh, gone on record during the Clinton administration, you know, uh, saying, you know, I don't remember what the exact quote was, but it, it was a time for those uh, 60-year-old records to be released to the public. So um, that did get people uh, excited that, you know, maybe he might be the one to push that to Obama and, and get something done. But I think you're exactly right. Obama has so much on his plate right now in terms of the economy and, um, you know, America's just not in a very good place. If, if he were to try to do something like that, it would be political suicide. Um, um, I, I don't see the Obama administration, I just don't see him as a disclosure president. I also think they're very politically savvy, probably more so than many administrations. And they recognize how dangerous it is to get involved in this crazy subject, this little strange world that we're involved in. But again, if there was an external event, but I don't think that's going to happen. And the reason, I think, is because UFOs seem to play this cat-and-mouse game. They come in here willy-nilly, they do their stuff, and they leave, but we can never get close enough. Or if we do, it's under disputable circumstances, an abduction, a contact, something like that doesn't seem to happen well the other the other issue or the question is what is shared with the temporary occupant of the white house right you know, exactly it, it, right. You, this it harkens back to the to the goldwater situation when he demanded to know uh, you know what was it right path and uh, and he was uh, promptly told that he wasn't authorized to know that and this is the united states senator you know so what do we share with uh, four-year occupants of the white house uh, opposed to lifers that are in government, uh, or the people that are hands-on in government and that have, that have run it for, for decades upon decades. Uh, or, if you will, for our conspiratorial friends, uh, the government within the government. Well, that also comes to into play the fact that the people who we think are in power can only do so much. After that, it's up to the secret government, the powers that be, whoever, whatever they are, but then we're really getting conspiratorial there. <laughs> you know, another there, thing... There, there's precedence for that. I mean, remember Project Shamrock, which basically was uh, was a wiretapping scheme, which was done by major corporations of the United States, 
who uh, recorded all of the outgoing uh, communiques in this country that uh, is supposedly just the ones that went outside the country, but yeah, right. God only knows. Uh, <laughs> of course, much like what Bush has done today inside the country, but that was unknown to uh, all the sitting presidents to from uh, from the birth of this uh, Project Shamrock up until I think Nixon. So we, there's precedence for, uh, for these things going on uh, of that magnitude that were unknown to the sitting presidents of the, of the time. No, Nixon, of course, just wanted to do it for himself. <laughs> the, president, yeah, exactly. the president that I would like to sit down with and talk to is the first President Bush because um, he was um, over the CIA. So I think if anybody knows any president, in recent times, know something, it would be him. You know, there's a document in the history of ufology that, for me, represents one of the absolute smoking guns. It was a memo, and Frank, you probably know this document. It was a memo that had been written by uh, J. Edgar Hoover, and it mentioned specifically in his handwriting, uh, those guys have got the disks and we can't get ask access to them. When, when I think about Hoover, you think about who had the greatest amount of power, concentrated power, in the U United States government during the 20th century. And for me, personally, Hoover is, is, is the key to this. I agree and, with that, except that specific document, uh, yeah. David, that was concerning, was actually concerning a hoax that was done in Louisiana. Really? And uh, yes, I, I researched that thoroughly. And uh, it, it wasn't the disks per se, as we came to know them. This this happened early on, and there were some minor hoaxes that went on uh, in the summer of 47 and, and thereafter, and there were some small things that were picked up. And In fact, Hoover's major problem with that whole scenario, he just didn't want to be the whipping boy for the Air Force. He felt that, uh, you know, we're, you know we're, we're just the errand boy here, and we want to be involved in this thing. Not that the intent uh, for him was not equal to, you know, to that specific document, but the actual incident was a hoax of some small disks uh, you know, that ended up being a hoax. They were just, you know, a couple feet in diameter, and, and somebody, a kid, had made them or, or something like that. And there right, was, thank you. there's, yeah, specific documents to shore that up. All right, I stand corrected. I, I'm man enough to say, okay, I was wrong. Never mind. Okay. <laughs> Fate Magazine is proud to be celebrating its 60th anniversary and its 700th issue. That's 60 years of bringing you true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. It's bigger and better than ever. Subscribe now by calling 1-800-728-2730 or online at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and Gene and Dana. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at 
theparacast.com. Never mind this. We're talking to Frank Warren and Angela Joyner, talking about the state of UFO research, having covered a lot of area with regard to Stephenville, Texas, and the possibilities of there being disclosure, and certainly if there is another agency within the government, or just the long-timers, the people who have been there for a while, who have their own government going on, whether official or unofficial, who keep things running, and they look at the president, and they look at congressmen as the temporary people, well, they'll be gone, another party will take over, and then they'll do their thing, and they'll wreck the country, and then somebody else will come back. They actually run the thing. Everything is run by the career people. So, you know, whether this is going to happen or not, I tend to be skeptical. I believe it would be nice if it were to happen. I think David agrees with me on this. We don't always agree 100% on everything, but you do agree with me this is not going to happen for that and many other reasons, right? Me? You. Yeah, no, I... David, are you still with us? I'm still with you. I'm still with you. Uh, no, I. Well, I'm still. I'm still pondering over what you just said, Frank. I'm thinking, oh my God, that smoking gun has gone up in smoke. Okay. Well, uh, but the sentiment. Listen, the important part of that was his sentiment, and that, in fact, is accurate. This that specific incident was uh, was a minor thing, but the Hoover yeah. sentiment was real. So, in that regard, what you're saying is is absolute. Well, I, I certainly event- think. That maybe the event was bogus. If anybody could have ever had access to real information, though, given that Hoover had dirt on everybody, I mean, this guy did whatever he wanted to do, literally, whatever he wanted to do. And we'll never know the reality about what really went down under his control of the FBI. We'll never really know, because I'm sure he got rid of most of the evidence that would have existed of any shady dealings he had. He, he You know, this is a guy who had a level of control and a level of influence that I don't know if there's anybody in the government today that could mirror that. I mean, there might be, but I wonder about that. You start to realize when you you look at the federal government and you look at the size of the government and the military that it is easy to lose things. It is easy to make things basically just go away. And there's this idea that, uh, and, and I know we've talked to Stanton Friedman about this topic, there's this idea that the government is such a big lumbering beast you could never have real secrecy. And I don't. I just don't agree with that. I think the size of the government is what makes it easy to make things sort of vanish under rocks, right? I agree wholeheartedly. In a large uh, organization, I think that's quite common that the left hand yeah. doesn't know what the right hand's doing because when you get down to it, communication is very difficult. I mean, on a personal level or a business level, you know, things can't be interpreted in different ways, and and it's hard to always uh, keep up in a large organization with everything that's going on. You know, everybody gets tunnel vision, and they're paying attention to their particular tunnel. Right. Well, and as Stan would remind us, you go back to the Manhattan Project. uh, You know, when when Truman came into office, he was completely, he was not in the know about the Manhattan Project, and that was the vice president of the United States. And, and we're talking about 10,000 people that were involved with the Manhattan Project. So can we keep a secret? <laughs> I, th- I think we can, and I think we do. And uh, sadly, I suspect that in, in 50 or 60 or 70 or 100 years, 
there's going to be an avalanche of information that's going to come out that will give historians of that time the ability to look back on this time and say, you know, the populace had no idea of what was going on. They really didn't know. And certainly, you know, and not to veer off into the political direction, people don't like it when we do that on the Paracast, but uh, I predict, I'll, I'll be the, uh, the psychic here and make a prediction, that in, let's say, 20 years, 25 years, when the real dirt comes out on what has happened with this quote-unquote bailout situation and Paulson and Bernanke, when, when the reality of this comes out, it's going to make the Bernie Madoff thing look like a walk in the park. It's going to make that look absolutely like a, a little a, a fart in the wind when we find out what has happened here and what is still happening with the... the I'd say 50 the, to 60 years. I think you're you, an optimist. You might be right. I, I, you know what? Most people would not say that about me, but maybe about this I am being optimistic. Uh, I think what's happened here is absolutely heinous and... Uh, and really is, it is, I believe, I don't know, but I believe it's the fall of the American empire. This is it. We're witnessing it, except we don't know it. We're, we're in the middle of it, and we don't see it. And our sense of patriotic pride and nationalism, as tarnished as it's become over certainly the last eight years, doesn't allow us to look at this objectively. But I think people in other countries who look back into what is going on with us and our, and our influence around the world and the wane of that influence... I think it's a... Uh, what, what influence, exactly. Yeah, well, now what influence? It's, it's, it's a very sad situation. And, and again, this is what makes me think that people who feel that there's going to be disclosure, that people at this point would even pay attention to it. You know, people who are losing their, their retirement accounts, people who are losing their homes, their jobs, that they most people would even care about this at this point. Uh, outside of the realm of entertainment... I think and that's don't, and that's exactly that's right. right. Issues in particular, don't, unless they affect one's personal bubble, the gas prices, for example. Nobody could care about uh, what's going on with oil until you're paying five dollars a gallon for gas. Then all of a sudden, it interrupts your own personal bubble, and it's important. So well, then it goes back at Americans. We we ignore these things yeah. until we're slapped in the face with it. Well, and then of course, what's happened in the past number of months is that the price of gas has come back down again. And nobody's focusing on it anymore. What's happening yeah. here is yeah. maybe all of that was hype. Speculators got in there and they drove the price up, regardless of the actual demand. That didn't matter. I mean, we were in a recession well, for a year and nobody told us. It was all well, a scam. It. It's a scam. Well, yeah, well, welcome to Planet Earth. Guys, I've, I've hung in here about as long as I can, right? I yeah. really have to go, go right. Sure. Before you leave, Angela, I'll just ask you, is there a place that our listeners can contact you or learn more about the things you do? <laughs> no. Um, you know, <laughs> That's good. Okay, end of show. Goodbye. Well, <laughs> let me wait a minute. Let me interject that we've added Angela to our alien scribe section at the UFO Chronicles, and, and uh, she can always be reached through there. Any comments can be made to any of her articles, which most are, are posted there at the UFO Chronicles. So she does have a portal there for anybody that's interested. Excellent. Okay. Okay. There you go. Angela, thanks for joining us. Thanks, thanks for having me on. You know, Gene, one thing I did want to uh, mention that uh, in, in terms of exposure, and this is the factor that we often forget about, you've got to remember all the other governments of the world that are, are unlike the United States government, the, the French in regards to Kameda and uh, the MOD uh, recently, uh, or, you know, adding their reports, uh, making their reports public. Something might, in fact, happen in another country. 
which may put our government in a position to say, well, maybe we should explain ourselves. Well, you know, that also is the fact that maybe we are all looking for, and this is probably a mistake these days, we are all looking for the American government to be the originator. If there's going to be disclosure, it's got to be the Americans. Well, no, it doesn't have to be the Americans. It could be the French. It could be the British. It could be someone else. Exactly. I think it's more likely to happen in South America myself. But look what the Brazilians have done uh, lately in, in terms of uh, how open they are. Or with the Campana uh, oil well fiasco, uh, to me, the good thing that happened with that was uh, the, uh, the efforts that the Mexican government and military did uh, mm-hmm. in regards to their cooperation with civilian ufologists. That was all a good thing. The, the incident uh, may not have been such a big deal. Uh, well, in fact, to me, it was good research. We found out exactly what that was. But, you know, the cooperation that was given by the authorities, the Mexican authorities, I thought was just it was fantastic, uh, unlike our government in these particular instances. So, yeah, something could happen uh, south of the border or another country, uh, the French. Uh, it, it may push our government into a, a position that they have to say or, or announce something. Right. Um, fingers crossed. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny you bring up that situation with the oil fields. You're talking about those lights that were seen at, on IR at the back of that uh, Mexican the, Air the Force. video, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know what's really frustrating about that is that that is still cited quite often as a legitimate visual, a piece of visual evidence. Every uh, time on Larry King. And they always bring it up, and it's like, well, right. it's... the Phoenix Flair video. <laughs> got it. And so I think as long as that's going on, you know, that, that they have to have some kind of filler to put on and as long as they keep doing that, uh, it's going to be very difficult to, to move this ahead. And, and, you know, there was a, an anecdote about this type of a problem when we had last year Paula Harris on the show. We confronted her about this because I had been at an event she, that, that she spoke at in Atlantic City where she was talking about things like uh, the O'Hare case. And she had up on the screen behind her images that Jeff Ritzman and I had debunked. And she had them up on the screen saying, oh, look, you know, there was this incident. And uh, and as she's talking, she's flashing these images behind her. And we confronted her with this. And I said, you know, what are you doing? These are known hoax fabricated images. Why did you put them up on the screen? And her incredibly lame response was, oh, because they're, they're visual examples of what UFOs might look like. It's like, yeah, but you didn't say that when you were doing this. You gave these images credibility by throwing them up on a screen. And, and I think this is a huge problem that I don't even know if there's a way that we can counteract or resolve this, where the, there are people in the mainstream media, there are people involved in ufology, quote-unquote, that continue to propagate these, uh, these hoaxes, these fabrications, and there's no sense of any kind of editorial diligence. And, and that, I find that very frustrating. And, Frank, as, as anybody who listens to the show know, you've been great with us about delving into these topics, and you've helped us uncover some of these people and, and, and expose them for what they are. But I keep coming back to this idea that for most people, certainly anybody who is not an experiencer, someone who's not seen, for example, UFO, they will look at these topics and they will treat them as nothing more than entertainment. When there are some of us who know that there is something highly unusual going on, and this might teach us something about the nature of who and what we are. But it almost, it's almost as if people 
they don't want to know who and what we are because it doesn't affect uh, their bank accounts and it doesn't affect the quality of the food they put on their table. And maybe that's the problem with all of this, and that when it comes right down to it, if it doesn't directly affect people's lifestyle today, they don't really care. And I find that very sad. Well, I agree with you, and that goes back to what I call the cognitive bias. You yeah. know, we are molded by society. We're, we're molded by society in general and our, uh, our parents specifically in our upbringing. Mm-hmm. And, of course, uh, our, our parents' upbringing, that's going to be echoed by their own mindsets. I mean, right. uh, if you come from a religious family, chances are you're going to be religious. You're going to have a religious background and uh, religious mindsets, etc. It's a phenomenon unto itself with the standard of thinking that we retain as we grow up and as we become adults. So when something goes outside that safety zone in regards to how we've been raised, and with, particularly with UFOs, and I think we all, or most of us, come from that position. I, I, I know I did. Mm-hmm. I was fortunate enough early on, you know, I was raised by my mother, and she instilled this sense of curiosity in me, so it made me ask questions. Uh, however, I still, you know, when I first started experiencing uh, or uh, reading about uh, ufology and flying saucers, of course, back in those days, I thought it was silly because I was taught to think it was silly. This just wasn't acceptable. Absolutely. Um, but as I dug into this thing, it made me ask more questions, you know, and I thought, well, wait a minute. Why would the <laughs> government investigate something for 20 years if there wasn't anything to it? It just doesn't make sense. So you've got to get past this cognitive bias that everybody has. And there is truth to the fact that if it doesn't upset the uh, the family's bubble, uh, then right. why bother? There's there's too many more important things going on, like, you know, mm-hmm. where's the next meal coming from? Or um, who's on American Idol? But, you know, it, yeah, just, well, you know, yeah. no, please don't mention that right. because we have that starting up again. Oh, God. <laughs> there you go. Perfect <laughs> context. I have never, Angela. ever seen an episode of American Idol. Ever. <laughs> and ladies and gentlemen, I will never see one. And I bet David can agree with me, right? Uh, I've actually watched it with my girlfriend's kids. There oh, you wow. go. Oh, wow. Uh, I, I can have. say I've never watched an episode all the way through, although I have caught pieces of it. But, uh, right. you yeah, know, I've, Angela yeah. is a prime example uh, of an individual that has walked through that doorway. Whereas, uh, you know, somebody that was afflicted just recently with, with this cognitive bias that I speak of, now this has affected her life, and she's walked through this doorway and, and, and gone to the other side and said, wow, yeah. look what's going on, going on here that I wasn't aware of. And she left her employers behind, yep. and that small-town status quo, you know, let's don't interrupt this small-town status quo, let that story mm-hmm. go. And then in, when she recounted the, the gal that replaced her, same thing. Oh, my God, I don't want my uh, reputation to be ruined. Uh, I'm just starting my career as a journalist. I don't want this attached to me. So Sad. we see it again and again. Uh, it's yeah. just it, it's, it's mind-boggling. I'll tell you what, what's mind-boggling is that we've run out of time, Frank. Can you tell our listeners where to find more of the things that you do? Well, of course, uh, as, uh, as always, you can just Google uh, either Frank Warren and the UFO Chronicles, and that'll get you there. I believe I mentioned before that we're now enjoying readers in over 140 countries. Uh, anything that happens uh, UFO-wise is, is posted automatically to UFO Chronicles. And currently, we have been doing an expose on Robert Hastings and the son of one of the commanders 
uh, of Echo Flight back in 67. The son is uh, taking Robert to task. There's been a little tete-a-tete going in. Oh. He's been on hmm. your show. Yeah. Yes, he has. He's we had a UFO and Nukes book, the Nukes book, right? Right. Now, that's correct. the one. Yeah. That's the correct yeah. one. Thank you. Exactly. And a lot of great uh, research he's done, and we're going to post his most recent uh, rebuttal to the uh, to the son of one of the commanders. I'll tell you uh, what, what, that's got to be it. That's got to be it. I'll tell you what, that's going to be on this week. And if you click on Frank Warren's name anywhere on the com, you go right to that site. Direct, lickety-split, no interruptions, no redirects. Frank Warren, thank you for joining us this week on the PowerCast. Thank you, guys, as usual. Thank you, sir. Always a pleasure having you with us. The PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in the PowerCast.